Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. So today I've entitled today's message. Now I please, I ask you to bear with me. Hang with me till the end. Don't let the title shock you too much, but I've entitled today's message, It's Okay to Be Me. Did you hear that? That might not be a message you hear a lot in church, but God wants you to know it's okay to be me. When I say that, I'm not saying be me. You know, the first time I preached, it was in an Assemblies of God church, and I was so nervous, and I was speaking out of Revelation, and I meant to say, uh, I don't even know what I meant to say, but three times in a row I said, I've just got to be God. You know, I call myself God three times in a row and lost and everyone started laughing and that just ruined it. So hopefully that won't happen today. But God wants you to know it is okay for you to be you. And this message is a message of embracing your authentic identity. Now, when I say it's okay to be me, what are your thoughts and feelings regarding that? One of the earliest things that many of us learned in our Christian journey was that me is something we are to reject at all cost. Me is to be rejected. Me can't be trusted. Me is desperately wicked, totally depraved, right? But what if God is all about it being okay to be me? What if that's what he created us to discover, to live in, and to walk in? When we look at John uh, chapter 3, it tells us that God, the Logos, became flesh. He became us. And you know what happened when he became us? He became me. He became you. He became all of us. So I first want to throw this thought out to you. If Jesus thought it was okay to be me, to be we, Perhaps it is okay to be me. Now, before we go on with this message, I want to look at the major objection that the church holds against being me. Jeremiah 17, 11, verse that we're all familiar with, might haunt a lot of us. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Boy, that just makes you feel all warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? And then we have Isaiah 55, 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. That kind of puts us in perspective, right? God's up here, I'm down here. God's awesome, I'm a worm, okay? Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. What's that telling you and me about our understanding? Don't trust it. Stay away from it. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. What does that tell you? You can't be trusted. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. That tells us that that's all we can do, evil. So why should we expect anything different? You know, I worked, I'm a counselor by profession, and I worked in addictions counseling for many years. 
One of the things I came to realize is that in addictions counseling, we set people up for failure. 90 meetings in 90 days, AA meetings. You know what happened when you missed that first meeting? You fell off the wagon because if I can't handle this, how can I handle the rest of it? A lot of times that happens with these scriptures. Now, I want to make it very clear. Some people have labeled me the scripture king. I won't mention any names, but I throw out a lot of scriptures. But I want to make sure that what I'm sharing, you can see that it's rooted in scripture. I value scripture. I honor scripture. I love scripture, and I believe in the verses that I just shared. I'm not putting them down in any way. But the thing that's most important to me is I want to understand them as God spoke them, as he intended them, not as men interpreted them. I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of interpretations of scripture, of religion in my early days in Christianity, and it messed up my life. And I spent a lot of time on learning some of those things. In scripture, from the very beginning, when we look at God's interaction with man, it was rich with God asking questions. In the garden, Adam and Eve sinned. They ran and hid in the trees. And God called out, where are you? A question. God knew where Adam was. He wanted to know, do you know where you are? Who told you you were naked? God knew where that came from. But do they? When we read scripture, when we have any interaction with God, it should prompt us into asking questions. What does this mean? And not what does it mean to me, but what does it mean to he? Now, when we look at these scriptures at face value, it seems God is saying, and more specifically, um, that me, or that we, that me, are deceitful, desperately wicked, and cannot be trusted. But is that really what God's saying? Now, the first question that should rise is, who created us? God, right? Did God create us evil? No. So where did the evil come from that these scriptures speak of? It came from the lie, from the serpent's lie. It did not come from God. God did not create us that way. You know, we look at these and we start piecing them together with the rest of the word and with what we know about God, God isn't telling us to reject me because the me that he created is our authentic identity in him. What he's telling us to reject is the fake me, the lie, the inauthentic identity that we're all too familiar with that tells us you are not, you are disqualified, you can never do this, you can never measure up, you are not loved, you are not worthy, why bother, you should just give up. Now maybe I'm the only one who experiences those types of things and those still come. But that's not the voice of our loving Father in heaven. That's the voice from the lie. God is calling us to embrace our authentic me, our authentic identity in me, in him. God is saying it's okay to be me. And to do this, we need to stop the not me. 
that being me, the lie. One of the things that's of primary importance in believing in me is believing that God doesn't make junk. Now, I'm sure all of us, we could identify exceptions to that rule, either going through history or people that we currently know, know that annoy the heck out of us. But one of the things that I truly believe is that God makes no exceptions to that rule. God has never seen humanity as junk. God has never seen you or anyone else's junk. He's never seen us through the serpent's lie or Adam's sin. God sees all through his original blessing. But what does the church focus on? Original sin. You're a sinner. You're not worthy. You're a worm. You're all these things. That's part of the serpent's lie. What we need to embrace and believe is that we are under original blessing and that never changed. You know, we've been taught that with Adam's sin, we cease being God's image. But if you go to Genesis 9, 6, God's prohibition against killing another man is because man is made in my image. That never changed. Religion is a way of changing things. But God doesn't change. Romans 4.17. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations, speaking about Abram. In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls the things that do not exist as though they did. Now you might look at yourself and see failure, disqualified, but God looks at each and every one of us and sees us through the eyes of his purpose, through the eyes of his identity, declaring us who we have always been in his heart and who we will always be. God refuses to see anything else. Acts 11.9, Peter, when he was Fasting and up on the rooftop praying and he smelled the good tasty meal being prepared below. And God gave him a vision of sheets falling down from heaven with all sorts of unclean animals that a good Jew wasn't allowed to eat. And what did God say? To do exactly what religion told him not to do. Kill Peter, eat. Oh Lord, never have my lips touched anything unclean. And what did God say? What God has cleansed, you must not call unclean. You must not call common. Who's God talking about there? A bunch of Gentiles that there were most unclean people around, and specifically a Roman, which was the worst of the worst. The only worst thing above that could be a tax collector. God, in his saying that, is declaring that in Jesus' single sacrifice, one sacrifice that covered all sin for all time, you can find that in Hebrews, he declared all clean. He didn't disqualify anyone. In God's eyes, I'm not junk, you're not junk, nobody's junk. God sees all through his love, his grace, and mercy. And it's his righteousness and justness that brings us all into these.
It's essential we see ourselves and each other. I want to say that again. It's essential we see ourselves and each other as God sees us so we can believe it's okay to be me. You see, we like to believe that we're the ones who have the right revelation. We're the ones who are right with God. But in reality, it's all of us. Why is it okay to be me? Well, first of all, from the very beginning, God had a word over us, and that word was very good, Genesis 1.31. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. We're part of that everything that God made. You're very good. And even after Adam's sin, under the law, God still declares, we're amazing. Psalm 139, 14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I encourage you every day when you get up, speak out, I'm amazing because God made me amazing. I should turn over to my wife, Diane, and lay my hand on her and say, Diane, you're amazing. I can remember one time when we, early in our marriage, she was going through a rough time and she said, will you pray for me? So I'm like, okay, I put my hand on her head and I'm praying. We didn't get up out of bed. We stayed laying in bed and I'm praying. And then all of a sudden she said, Tom, 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 wake up, you fell asleep. That was not good, okay? So be wise with how you do things. Now, when we look after the cross, God continues to bring the concept of me and God okay being me to the forefront in his perfect completion. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He began a good work in you. He began a good work in all his creation. And what it says there is he is confident of that work being brought on to completion. What's the good work that God created in us, that God began in us? I suggest God's focus here isn't on what you do. It's not on the giftings that he's placed in you as much as I appreciate them. What I suggest, it is being who you authentically are. It's authentic identity. It's about restoring the first thing that man lost. When God in the garden said, on the day you eat, you will surely die, man didn't fall over dead. Man spiritually did not cease hearing God's voice or ability to interact with him. Adam didn't get thrown into hell on that day. So is God lying when he said, on the day you eat, you will die? Something died that day. His eyes were open. His eyes were open to something new that he had never experienced before. His eyes were open to something we are all too familiar with. His eyes were open to the lie. The lie that you need to do something to be loved by God. You need to do something to be accepted by God. You need to do something to be right with God. And in reality, we've always been the apple of his eye. We never lost the treasure of our authentic identity. It's always been in you and me and in each and every one of us. But where it's been is hidden 
deep within a field. You know, in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about the field, you know who he's talking about? You and me. We're the field. That's a whole other message that I won't get into. We never lost the treasure of that authentic identity. It's always been buried and protected in the field of our hearts, far from the reaches of the lie. This verse goes on and says that God brings us into completion. Epitelio, which means to bring us into his total maturity. It means to bring us into everything he purposed in us. It says he will complete that. He is doing it, and he never fails, so we can trust in him and his finished work. Even if you don't see it or believe it, God's got enough faith for both you and him. God believes you. He believes in you, and he believes what he's placed in you. It's okay to believe in me, which is rooted in he. Another reason why it's okay to believe in me is John 12, 32. Jesus said this, and if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Now, if we notice that word peoples, it's italicized in the Greek text. It is not there. What Jesus said is, if I am lifted up, and he was talking about his death there on the cross, I will draw all, all negativity. I will draw everything onto myself. Everything is included in me. All means all, nothing exempt. The Old Testament speaks of all being good. In the New Testament, on the cross, Jesus revealed all as being good. That was Peter's revelation. Don't call what I've made clean unclean. You are good, period. Regardless of what you do, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you will do tomorrow. And if you're good, it's okay to be me. It's okay to be the authentic me in his image, in his likeness. Now you may argue, I have too many imperfections, but if so, be encouraged. Imperfection doesn't disqualify anyone. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship, are you God's workmanship? Is a guy sitting at the bar God's workmanship or did Satan create him? We're all God's workmanship. It doesn't exclude anyone. All humanity that ever has existed, does exist, and ever will. We're created in Christ Jesus. Uh-oh. I'm in Christ. You're in Christ we're all created in him. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God is working in us, allowing us to embrace who he created us to be. Now, you know that last part of that verse, God prepared all these works that we should walk in them? A lot of times when we look at that, we think that that should is that we might, that possibly it'll happen. But you know, when you look at the Greek text, it doesn't say that should means should. And actually, it's subjunctive hina clause there, which means it will happen. It is a positivity. There is no questions asked. The work that God began in you, he will complete. 
His word does not return to him void. It will return to him. It won't return to him void. It will accomplish its purpose. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Regardless of what you see in your life, what negativity, God tells you everything you need for life in every respect and godliness in every respect. It's already in you. It's like Prego spaghetti sauce. It's in there. Diane would always have to watch me, you know, spicing up the prego because I try to put, you know, chili powder and cayenne pepper in it, and sometimes I get it too spicy, and so she'd be watching it. Uh, did you put anything in it? No. Then I'd have to pray, God, please let it not be too much, you know. I confess, okay. Yeah. But you see, everything we need is already in us. But, you know, sadly, what we've been taught to do is we need to plead. We need to fast. We need to break ourselves and destroy ourselves to get what's already ours. Isn't that the same thing that the serpent did with the lie in the garden? If you do this, you will be like God. I mean, if you were like me, I was taught original sin was Adam's desire to be like God. But God created us like him. We are like him. We are his image. We are his likeness. The original sin was trying to earn, trying to become what God's already given us. It is a finished work, Jesus' last words on the cross. It is finished. Everything that needed to be done was done. And you know what's even mind-blowing? Jesus was a lamb slain from when? The foundation of the world. It's always been a finished work in him. That's why Adam sinned and catch him off guard. I already have this taken care of. It's cool. And I cannot wait for the day when you come into the realization of all that is yours and all that is you and that we are one. He called us in his glory and virtue by which he has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through them we may be partakers of the divine nature. That's a pretty bold statement. But when Jesus became us, we became included in him. That's what John 17 says. We are one. We became incorporated. Now, I'm not God. You're not God. But we are the genos of God. We are the family, the stock, the lineage. His DNA is our DNA. His breath is our breath. We are one. But what if we have trouble looking past all the junk? And we can't believe in me. And I know no one here experiences that. Elijah, great prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, had a similar problem. And let's look at how God drew him out of it. In 1 Kings 19.3, we see that Elijah was doing God's bidding, and he came against Ahab and Jezebel and did some things that I'm not going to mention here, but Jezebel was ticked. And I'm not talking about tick-tock. And I know I said that wrong, but, you know, I'm sure she would have made a good video out of that if that was around back then. But Elijah knew there was a bounty on his head, and he ran. Boy, mighty prophet of God there, running from the enemy, right? <laughs> but he ran. And God met him on the way and, and fed him that 
gave him spiritual food and drink that he could survive the 40-day run. And in verse uh, 9, it says, And when he arrived at Horeb, the mountain of God, he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. You know, it's important when we see words, when we look up the usage of those words. What kind of characters hung out in caves? You know, we look at David and his mighty men. They hung out in caves. And what were his mighty men? They were murderers and thieves and and all sorts of uh, uh, despicable characters, okay? He went into a cave and he spent the night. You know, he was going through some dark times there, and that's the night he was going through. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Now, God didn't drop a scripture and bunk it on his head. The word there, if you look at the Greek Septuagint, it is the word rhema, if any of you are familiar with it. It is the spoken, living word. Elijah heard God speak to him. And what did he do? He asked him a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. I'm for you. I'm more for you than anyone else has ever been for you. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Us versus them. I'm not like them. They're the bad guys. I'm the good guy. They tore down your altars. They killed your prophets with the sword. I'm the only one left. What kind of vision did Elijah have there? You ever been there at that spot where you feel persecuted that I'm the only one? That's where I was at my beginning journey of grace when God sent someone that I had trouble with to minister his life to me and began began my journey back a long time ago. Then God said after all this, verse 11, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Can you remember any other times in scripture where it talks about mountains? How about Matthew 17, 20, where Jesus said, behold, if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. If you have faith, if you believe what you speak, will happen, you will see it. You know one of the best meanings of the word faith is, pistis in the Greek? Trust. It's trusting in him. It's not about you feeling that, oh, I've got all this power. It's that I am trusting in he who has all the power, in he who works his complete finished work through me. Now the Lord passed by as Elijah was standing out on that mountain, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces. Whoa, that's pretty cool. But Elijah realized the Lord wasn't in the wind. That could do all these great things. God wasn't in that. After the, uh, and then uh, after the wind, God sent an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake either. And after the earthquake, a fire but the Lord was not in the fire. And afterward, catch this, a still, small voice. In the Septuagint, it's the word aura there, which means to hear, and not just to hear, but to perceive, to see the whole laid out plan. 
So it was when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the mantle and who God declared him to be, and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. He left the cave, the pit of gloom and despair that he was in. Then the voice came again. What are you doing here? Outward manifestations don't define us. You know what defines who you are? His voice. What he declares to be true about you. That's what defines us. Now, in knowing God, Adam, Abel, and Abraham had no Bible. So how did they know God? They heard his still, small voice. And you do too. It's in there, whether you realize it or not. Are you his sheep? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They know my voice. They will not follow the voice of another. But, but Lord, I've done this, I've done that. No, I am the one who's finishing and completing the work in you. It's not about you, it's about me. It's not about what you do. It's about what I have done. I have equipped you. I have empowered you. That's what his grace is all about. Elijah hid in the cave, the tomb of despair. Jezebel was out to kill him. He believed the lie greater than the truth. Now, believing in me is a process. We can be up here. We can be down here. We can fluctuate in this. But it doesn't fluctuate with God. He sees us as he's always seen us. The loud voices of disqualification were no comparison for God's voice of qualification within. The same is true for us today. You're not desperately wicked, but the lie about you is. And that's what God was speaking about in those verses that I spoke about earlier. It's speaking about the lie, the false and authentic identity. It's time to believe what God says about you, to listen to his still small voice within that can move the mountains of unbelief allowing you to be you, the God created you to be. Or no, let me rephrase that. That doesn't sound right. God, become the you who God created you to be. That sounds better. I I did do it today. I said I wasn't going to, and I did do it. So, okay. Now, here comes the tricky part. How do I know I'm hearing the voice of God? How do I know what I'm hearing is him and not me? I said all that to get to this because this is an important part about being me. Now, how do I know if it's God's voice and not mine? That's an excellent question and a very important question, but you know something? It's a silly question at the same time. Why? Whose image were you made in? God's. Being made in his image, what should your voice sound like? his voice. It should sound very similar. We're not God, but if what we're hearing sounds like him, there's a good chance it is him. If the words don't line up, it's because it isn't his voice. It's the voice of, it isn't the voice of me, the authentic me, but rather the voice of the lie. If what you're hearing is good, it's likely God's voice. If it's bad, it's likely the lie speaking. Is that voice that you're hearing telling you lies about yourself or others? Is it causing harm? Is it without mercy, compassion, love, grace, and righteousness? Does it produce fear? If any of these are present, it's likely not 
his voice. John 10, 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear and know my voice. Now, I believe, and I'm going to go through these quickly. I'm not going to spend time expounding on them. I believe scripture reveals 11 litmus tests to discerning if it's your voice or God's voice. To determine if it's God's voice and the voice of your authentic identity, which is being me. Now, if any of the 11 that I share with you are lacking, it's a good indication you want to hold out and take some time and continue to pray before acting on it. First of all, the one that we're all familiar with is at peace. Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. So with what I'm hearing, is it peaceful? Well, it's a good chance it's his voice. Is it joy? John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you, that your joy or that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. The word you're hearing doesn't prompt joy, and joy is different than happiness. It might be something that I really don't like, but I've got joy and excitement about doing it. Is it righteousness? Romans 14, uh, 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the word in there is N. And whenever we see the word N or translated as in in scripture, it means resting in place. Every Greek preposition, it carries the concept of motion. So rest, if you see in, it means resting in place. If you see out, it means motion outward. You know, there's, the Greek is a very rich language. Number four, is it hope? Colossians 1.27 to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Is what you're hearing inspiring hope and positive expectation for the future? Believing the lie, Adam and Eve experienced severe hopelessness and acted out of the lie to attempt to alleviate it. If, you are, if what you're hearing is rooted in hopelessness rather than hope, it's a good clue that it's not God's voice you're hearing. Is it rooted in faith, hope, and love? 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these in love. Adam and Eve ate out of not trusting in God. They acted out of distrust. They acted out of a sense of separation in order to gain love and acceptance. If what you're hearing isn't rooted in trust and unconditional love and hope, it's a good clue that it's not God's voice you're hearing. Is it life and godliness? 1 Peter 1.3, which I read earlier. He's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Adam and Eve sensed their nakedness and shame, which resulted in their hiding. What they experienced wasn't God's life or godliness. If what you're hearing isn't full of life and godliness, it's a good clue that it's not God's voice you're hearing. Number nine, is it his living word? 
John 17, 8. For I have given to them the words, the rhema, which you have given me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. If what we're hearing isn't in line with what God's speaking, it's likely not of God. We received prophetic exhortation today multiple times. And to get out of the busyness of life, which isn't life, and to get in the busyness of his kingdom life, that's a powerful word. And you know when God speaks something, he gives the power, he equips for us to walk in it. Number 11. This is a biggie. Is it rest? You know another word for rest in the New Testament? Grace. Is it empowering? Is it equipping? Rest and grace, those are antithetical to works. Now, what's the motivation of why I'm doing something? That's a primary thing of importance here. Am I doing this in order to look good in other people's eyes or in the person that I'm ministering to? Am I doing it to gain rewards, eternal rewards? Or am I doing it out of his love and compassion to be a servant? Also, am I working for it? Or is God manifesting it within? Hebrews 4.10 For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from works as God did from his. There's a huge difference between good works and works leading to death. It's all about the motivation, like I mentioned. Until the lie, Adam and Eve rested in their authentic identity in Christ. Believing the lie, they had to work to earn it. And unfortunately, that's what's become the gospel that we're so accustomed to. That's why grace seems so strange and such a foreign concept. But actually, if Paul was around, what is believed in the majority of Christianity would be seen in those terms. If what you're hearing is convincing you to work for what's already yours, if it's convincing you to do those things through love, to earn love and acceptance and rewards, it's a good clue that it's not God's voice you're hearing. In closing, I want to encourage you. You are God's image. His breath is your breath. Being me is embracing what God says about me. God made you amazingly unique, giving you your giftings, your passions, and your desires. I want to encourage you. You hear his voice. You might not fully recognize it yet, but it is in there. Believe that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion, no questions asked. You are his beloved. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Father, in the name that's above every name, over each and every one here, I speak your blessing. I speak your first blessing that you gave to Adam. Be fruitful. 
multiply, fill, subdue the earth. Lord, I thank you for opening our eyes to realize that your image is our image. We're not you, but we're like you. And thank you for your breath that you place within. I speak hope. I speak encouragement. I thank you for your empowerment to embrace your finished work. Amen. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, brother. Wasn't that good? I say that because it was good to me. You know, it's, it's interesting because I think even for me as I've come along in this journey, you know, I remember the first time I prayed the prayer. I was in front of my grandma's house. I was seven years old, and I just had this moment where I'm like, Dad, I really want to, to have Jesus in my heart. We've all heard these. I know it's not scriptural. There's nothing about God being in your heart, but this is the things that we say. I remember praying that prayer. And even at seven, feeling something there. But, you know, through this journey, I, I've learned so many different things, and I've had to even unlearn certain things. And I found that it's really hard, even when, when Holy Spirit started to lead me into this idea, and some of these ideas like Pastor Tom talks about, where it gets scary because you're like, well, I, I thought there was this whole transactional thing that had to happen. Are you familiar with the transaction? You pay and I give. And so a lot of times, even my relationship with God became something that was transactional. It's an idea that, you know, God has done something for me. So what do I need to do in order to make what God has done for me really stick? Does that make sense? When the gospel is not about transaction, it's about trust. God has already done everything he's going to do for you. And this is something that I had to really search my heart about because I thought at that time it was certain words and a certain prayer that was transactional to cause me to somehow be something that I never was. But I realized that the prayer, which is beautiful if you prayed the prayer or whatever, whatever it may be, that belief, belief's important. One amen. Belief's important. But that prayer didn't magically make something happen to me. It brought me into a place where I trusted that what God has already done has been accomplished. Does that make sense? And so I say that because I don't want anyone, sometimes when you, when you preach gospel this good, it scares people. Because they're like, I, I don't know how it can be that good. Well, first of all, how many here are better than God and bigger than God? Anyone? And when you look at the way that the original language states, for instance, God is not willing that any should perish. I often, I remember this question in one time. I said, so does God get what he wills? I mean, a God is a big God, I believe. He created the entire universe, everything here. But people get scared because they're like, well, what about the belief? Belief is so important. You never can walk in anything you don't believe. In fact, I'll go back to say what you said, Tom. This is why belief's important. Adam and Eve in the garden story believed the lie. They lived their life according to their belief system, which was a lie. I'm not good enough. 
I'm not like God. I need to work harder to be like God. But the truth the whole time was you're already just like me. I made you just like me. You believed a lie. So then we see in the early church in Acts, they're preaching these messages, like 17 or 18 gospel messages preached. And what's interesting is there's no altar calls. There's nothing. It says they believed and were added to the church that day. Belief's important, but it's not transactional. It's believing something that's already happened. And so I've had people say something like, well, do you believe everyone's saved? I'm like, well, look around you. Does it look like everyone has been delivered, uh, preserved, uh, restored? Do you know the word salvation in the Greek literally means that? Deliverance, safety, preservations, wholeness, and healing. How many say there's areas in your life you still need some deliverance? I'll raise two hands. How much? That's why it's an ongoing work. And it's me believing that Jesus has already done everything I need that brings me to the reality of living in the truth of who I already am. So we're not taking away people's decision. We're saying we need to believe and trust that this is so good that we actually step into it and say, all right, I am a son of God. I am a daughter of God. And now, see, here's what we, here's what we struggle with. But I still got stuff. How many got stuff? Come on. We're working through it. Do you know how you stop the stuff? Realizing who you truly are. Stop believing the lie. Because guess what? Nobody gets away with anything. We reap what we sow. And when I believe God's doing it, he's trying to call us to a place where we begin to see ourselves as we truly have always been so that we can then trust it, step into it, and begin to live it, a reality where we live it out. Does that make sense? And so I encourage you this morning, seeing yourself as a lowly worm and as less than is not God's will. God gave everything he was, including himself, by death for you. You know what that says about us? We're worth it. Say, I'm worth it. Stand with me and say, I'm worth it. And if you're here today, just close your eyes, not for religious reasons, but I really want you to think this through. If you're here today and, and maybe you've never stepped out in that belief to say, God, I believe the truth that you're telling me about me. I believe that I am worth it and that I am loved and that your grace is sufficient and that you completely forgive me. If you've never taken that step today, it can be a prayer. It can be something you decide in your heart, but you have to trust and believe it's true. I ask you this morning, if that's you, maybe today is the day you take that first step to say, I trust you. I believe you. I thank you, Holy Spirit. People are making those decisions this morning, and it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning of them beginning to dig in with your help to discover the truth of who they are. And then the beauty of it is as we begin to live out of that, we'll see our thoughts change. We'll see our actions change. We'll see our words change all of a sudden, we begin to look more like Jesus. So we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the words in Scripture that point us to this place of our true authentic identity. And this morning, we together say this with me. I receive my identity in Christ. It's mine. I embrace it.
In Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.